Good morning. I haven't seen you guys from this perspective for a long time. So, no, it's great to be with you. And as we get started this morning, I just, uh, no, it really is good to be with you. I, this is my family. And as we begin this morning, I want to say thank you, Dave Talley, uh, for being with us for this period of time. I, your leadership and... Your leadership has been much appreciated. Your preaching has been phenomenal. Okay, I'm speaking for <laughs> I'm speaking for myself, but I could hear you preach the Bible every day of the week and not get tired. This is uh, really, really appreciated it. And I was talking with Rick Price this morning and a little bit with Larry there. You guys, I don't say thanks enough for leading the team and set up and tear down. It's a whale of amount of work. And I'm, we're really grateful. Thank you so much. There's a lot more that I could be thankful for this morning. Uh, but it's just good to be uh, here with my family this morning. Last week I was away at an event and we had the privilege of hearing Brian Loritz speak and the Brenton Brown Band for uh, our worship time and uh, it was awesome and so on, but there's nothing like being with your own family as we get together. So um, as we get started this morning, uh, I want to ask you, we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to ask you to... Uh, boot up your Bible and navigate to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 26, or if you have your paper version. And we're going to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. So stand with me, and as we read God's Word, join with me in, in just absorbing what these words have to say this morning. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people... In the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. While the time, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he went, sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw that they saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us 
kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You can be seated. Bow with me for a moment. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you will open our hearts this morning to receive what you have for us. I pray that you would make our hearts pliable to what your spirit would like to lay on our hearts this morning. I pray that we would be ground that is receptive to your word and that you would be powerfully at work in your, by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. Bless our time together. Receive our worship and our thoughts and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just give a brief uh, overview of what we've just read. There are 26 verses, and I calculated at three minutes per verse, uh, 78 minutes, it's 1049. We can do this, 78 minutes. Yeah, okay. So, no, we won't go 78 minutes. But let me give a, just a real thumbnail sketch, an overview of this text. The first section has to do with authority. And actually, the theme of authority is woven through each one of these sections. So the question that the chief priests are asking Jesus is, you know, who... What right do you have? What authority do you have to be showing up in the temple and preaching and teaching this way? And the implicit answer that Jesus gives is that it's authority from God. It's from heaven. It's the same as John the Baptist. In the final passage that we looked at regarding tribute, the question is, what authority do you have to collect tribute. And Jesus claims 
that there's a certain tribute that belongs to, to uh, Caesar, but ultimately all tribute belongs to God. What they intended as a, the horns of a dilemma, an either-or sort of situation, Jesus recasts in terms of a both-and, but the issue is authority. And then we come to the passage that I want to focus on, and we'll spend almost all of our time in the parable of the talents, or the, wicked, uh, the parable of the wicked tenants this morning. The issue is once again authority. The question is, who has authority over this vineyard? And the issue that we face is the tenants believe they have a certain level of authority and try to usurp the authority of the owner. The main point of this whole section, and particularly the parable of the, ten, of the wicked stewards, is encapsulated in verse 13. What do we do with the son? Will we respect God's beloved son? And that becomes the question that we will leave with one another today and that I'll leave with you. What do you do with the son? Will you respect the son? So before I get into this, I I just have to share a little bit of a story because I can't... Every time I've read the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, something from my background uh, comes into my mind, and I make these associations and so on. But before I became a Bible professor, I had another life. And most of you probably don't know about that other life. But I was raised on a ranch in agribusiness and in farming and thought that's what I would be doing with my life. I thought I'd be bivocational, involved in ministry, but also deeply involved in agribusiness. My poor wife thought she was marrying a farmer. Uh, Things changed. (laughs) I've had a different focus. But I actually love the farm, and I love agribusiness and all of that. But uh, when I finished my education, and we'd spent three years in the northeast of Scotland in Aberdeen, where I met Brian Wilson and a variety of other characters. Um, and I didn't change Brian's nappies, uh, regardless of what he says. Uh, when we moved back, uh, I joined a friend of mine and worked with my dad somewhat uh, with the goal of being in, deeply involved in agribusiness and deeply involved in ministry. And so we came back into the Central Valley, and I leased 200 acres of farmland there and uh, began working in agriculture while doing some work in ministry in the local church and with a Bible institute. The man that I leased the land from was actually very well known through the Central Valley. Uh, He had been really... uh, big farmer with potatoes and cotton and did very, very well in it and kept multiplying his holdings and was quite a tycoon in the, in the agricultural business. But that was earlier on and now he was older. Unfortunately, uh, in the course of his life, even though he was raised in heritage as a Christian, kingdom values were not front and center for him. 
And as a result, he was a workaholic and neglected his family, neglected his marriage, and didn't live out kingdom values in this. Over the course of his life, his wife left him. He became estranged from his kids, and things were were pretty tough. Now he was in the twilight of his life. He was dying of cancer, and uh, he had no one around him. And he was beginning to lease out his land. And part of the reason that he was leasing out his land is that the hired men that had worked for him were taking advantage of him too. They were stealing equipment. They were stealing the crops. They were selling it and, and taking advantage of him that way. And as I've reflected on this man's life, uh, I mean, and I've reflected on it a lot because it's tragic. It's really tragic. Uh, it has underlined for me in some very powerful ways how devoting life to the pursuit of wealth is really vanity. It sounds a little bit like something Solomon would say. But I learned it firsthand from observing this guy's life. But that's an empty pursuit. And just seeing how he was taken advantage of, isn't there something more in this life that we should dedicate ourselves to. In our story, the estate owner was completely in the right. In my story, the estate owner was out of sync with God and his perspective. But in the parable of the tenants, of the wicked tenants, the estate owner was uh, completely in the right. Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants as a parable. And as we enter into the details of this parable, it's important to realize that typically with a parable, there's one main point. And so that main point usually revolves around Jesus or something to do with the teaching about the kingdom of God. This parable is a little different, however, in that it contains allegorical elements. In other words, there's multiple points of meaning that come out that need to be interpreted and put together as a whole. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the story of the kid in Sunday school who was asked the question, uh, you know, the teacher asked him, uh, so what's, what's gray, collects nuts, has a big bushy tail, and runs up a tree. And the kid thought about it for a second and said, well, it sounds like it ought to be a squirrel, but I know that the answer is Jesus. Uh, Well, with parables, the answer is usually Jesus or the kingdom. With this parable, yeah, that's true. It is that. But there's something so much more in this parable because there's a lot of elements that are very instructive. So what I propose doing for a while is I want to go through this passage with you and draw out some of the significance of some of the key elements and talk about that with you. And at the end, we'll sum it up with a couple of key significant points of application. So turn with me to chapter 20, verse 9, and we're going to take a look at the various elements that are there. Luke 20, verse 9, he says, He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard 
and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. A man planted a vineyard. So he begins by telling this story of something that people would have seen all around them in Palestine and Israel and the ancient Near East. As walking down a dusty road, you would see vineyards on your right and your left and so on. It's just part of normal life living in the land of Israel at that time. So we might ask the question, where did Jesus get the idea of to spin a story about a vineyard? And you could say, well, he just had to look around him and you could find out, uh, you know, you could see that from everyday life. But there's something much deeper about this in that the vine and vineyard throughout the Old Testament was a symbol for the nation of Israel and what God was doing among his people. All throughout the Old Testament, that's the case. So take, for instance, Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And we can go through a variety of other passages, Isaiah chapter 5 and a host of others, The vine was a symbol of Israel. The vineyard was a symbol of God's work among Israel. In fact, if you were to go back in time and we were to go into uh, the temple courts in Jerusalem where the temple was located and go to the actual temple structure itself, Josephus tells us that there was this golden vine that was inscribed uh, beautifully around uh, the temple entrance. If you were to look at a coin from the first century minted in Jerusalem, you would find the vine as a symbol for that. So as Jesus begins this parable, it's not going to be lost on his hearers that what he is talking about is Israel and Israel's leaders by using the symbolism of the vine and, uh, as he begins here in the vineyard. But he goes on, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and then went into another country for a long while. Tenants. Who are these people? Who are the tenants in control of the vineyard? Now, I'm going to, this is free now, so I'm no charge for this, but my day job used to be teaching Greek, and I'm going to teach you a Greek word this morning, okay? (laughs) So the word in the Greek that appears here is a word that you'll probably never forget now. It's the word for farmers or tenants, and it's the word George. So, George is a name that we get from the Greek that means a farmer or a tenant and so on. So, he, he leased it out to a group of Georges uh, in this case. Um, the King James Version translated this husbandman. And I remember being really confused by that word for a long time because I think of husband in relationship to my wife. Uh, but in British English, a husband can be a manager of something. And so he leased it out to these groups, and they were the tenants. Now, what's important to distinguish here is that the tenant farmers for this vineyard did not reflect the nation as a whole, but they reflected the leaders of Israel at the time. So we see the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they appear multiple times through Luke chapter 19 and Luke chapter 20. And Luke is very concerned to distinguish them from the people of Israel as a whole. 
In fact, the people of Israel believed John the Baptist's message was from heaven. And these guys were afraid of the people sometimes that they might even get stoned if uh, they acted wrongly. So there's a distinction there. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are the tenants. So what was Jesus expecting from them? Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. What was it that the owner of the vineyard was looking for? And by extension, what was God looking for from the leaders of Israel? And this is easy because it goes back to Genesis and the foundations of the way God set things up. When he chose Abraham, he told Abraham, through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it was through Israel and through the leaders of Israel that they were to be a light to the nations. And just in the prior chapter, in the end of chapter 19, we have the amazing situation of Jesus clearing the temple with the money changers and the one comment he makes is a quotation out of Isaiah 56 where he says my house shall be a house of prayer and if we go back and look into the context of Isaiah 56 it evokes the memory my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations and so the tenant farmers of this vineyard were getting things really messed up. They were not blessing the world. They were not making the temple a place of blessing for all the nations. And they were looking much more at themselves. So Jesus was expecting something from them. God was expecting something from them that they were not delivering. And then in the course of the parable, we hear about the three servants. Three servants that were sent beaten, and returned empty-handed. And that leads up to the decision of the owner of the estate to send his son. The three servants are also significant in how we interpret this parable because these represent God beckoning his leaders throughout Old Testament history to return to the covenant fidelity, the covenant faithfulness that he was seeking from them at that time. And yet the tragedy in Israelite history as we see it unfolding in the Old Testament is that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and it was the words of the prophets often fell on deaf ears. And so Elijah noticed in 1 Kings 19, uh, he says, he quotes the Lord as saying, I've been, a very jealous, been je- very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Jesus even says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And I could list dozens of other passages where in the course of Old Testament history, there was a refusal to listen to the message of the prophets 
And the leaders of the nation often led the people astray. And they were not delivering on the way God had designed Israel to be as a light to the nations. So in response to this situation, in the flow of the parable then, the owner of the vineyard, representing God the Father, sends his, and it's interesting the way it's worded, I sent my beloved son. That evokes a memory for us of Jesus in his baptism with his spirit descending onto Jesus and God speaking from a cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he sends his son thinking the son will make a difference, but he doesn't. The son comes and they kill him. And he is taken outside the vineyard and murdered. And even that has an interesting ring of similarity to the fact that Jesus was crucified outside of the city on Golgotha uh, during the time of his resurrection. The response of the owner of the estate in this passage then, what will I do? I will come and destroy them and I will give the vineyard to others. And this becomes a significant theme that we find in the New Testament. And it results in our blessing because the vineyard is given to the Gentiles and the period of the Gentiles is ushered in. The good news is that God is not done with his people, Israel. There's still a plan and a future for Israel. But it will now be a different mechanism and a different plan for God to, to work to bring Israel to himself and to bring others to himself. Then finally, verses 17 and 18. He looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is actually a citation from Psalm 118, verse 22. It's a messianic psalm, but an interesting image. He goes from a vineyard image now to a stone that people can stumble over and be hurt, or it falls on them and they're crushed. And it seems odd to us. I mean, what this is a real abrupt change of metaphor. It really seems odd to us. But this passage, the stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone, becomes a significant promise for the New Testament era. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Speaking to us. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what this passage indicates is that in the change of God's way of working with his people, the stone that was rejected 
in other words, the beloved son, now becomes the foundation of a new work of God that God will use to create a new temple, not out of stones in Jerusalem, but a living temple that will be built up into the Lord. But Jesus is the foundation of this new temple. And uh, the stone of stumbling now becomes the cornerstone of a whole new edifice. Now our time is marching on, and I'm about ready to bring it in. There's a lot in this parable, and a lot that I can't go into today because we have a very limited amount of time. But there's two points that I think are really vital for us to reflect on as we leave from here today. And both of them have to do with the question, what do we do with Jesus? And the issue is, do you respect the Son? Because that was the issue in this parable. Perhaps they will respect my beloved Son. What do we do with the beloved Son, who is now the foundation of a new temple in the new plan of God to reach the world with his caring, loving, benevolent mission? So the first question is, what is your personal response to the Son? Is the Son a stone of stumbling for you? Or is the Son someone you run to and embrace? For many, he is a stone of stumbling because he has authority. That was the other theme that went through this passage. Through the Son, God makes a claim on each one of our lives. There will be a time of accountability in which we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. History as we know it will not continue in just the way that we think it will day after day. There will become a sudden and cataclysmic end to history and all will be drawn to accountability. And at that time, the main issue to ask is, what have you done with the Son? The good news is that in the grace and loving kindness of our Lord, he sent the Son to save us. And so responding to the Son brings us into a relationship with the Father that enables us to escape the judgment that is to come. But that's the crucial question. Do you respect the Son? The leaders of Israel at that time did not. And they refused to listen to the Son, refused to accept what he had to say. And then the second question that we grapple with for ourselves is this. Does your respect for the Son include good stewardship of what he has given you to do business with until he returns? This is a parable about stewardship. And we have wicked stewards. And the question for us is, how will we steward what God has given us? It connects this parable to what Dave Talley spoke on earlier uh, on Luke chapter 19, the, terrible, the parable of the ten minas. Dave got that wrong. Minas, not minas, minas. <laughs> I remember hearing that. I'd never heard it as a mina, but a mina. 
The question is, for us right now, we too have been given an endowment by the Father in terms of spiritual gifts, natural abilities, and how will we use the resources that God has given us to do business for the kingdom until the king returns? Now, the first question, what do we do with the sun, has already been settled. So if we are in the sun, we have a vital relationship with him, and we don't have to worry about the rock falling on us. But we serve out of gratitude and one of wanting to do good business for the king when he returns so that we receive the reward of eternal life. It reminds me of John chapter 15 where John uh, talks about the vine and the branches and that theme appears again. I am the vine, you are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. So in the vine, how are we stewarding what God has given us to use, to do business with until he returns? Another way of looking at these two questions to sum up this whole parable is this. What do we do with Jesus as Savior, and what do we do with Jesus as Lord? Because Jesus makes a claim on our lives both as Savior and as Lord. And so I leave you with that today. Do you respect the Son? Are you doing business until he returns? Bow with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for this group, for the time that we could learn from you this morning through your word. This is a complex parable, Lord. I pray that you'll give us great insight into it. Most of all, Father, I pray that you will help us to see how we can respond to you with love, with respect, with gratitude for all that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.